I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about COVID and all things health in this flu season, COVID season, RSV season, and the season in which NIH is making a lot of changes, we have with us Dr. Steve Morrison, one of my favorite guests, and who I co-host The Common Health Podcast with, which I'm sure many of you listen to. We used to be called COVID Crisis Update, but we changed it. That's also reflective of where we are with COVID now. And of course, Steve is the director of our Global Health Policy Center at CSIS and a senior vice president at CSIS. Steve, so great to have you here amid this season of extreme COVID confusion. I feel like nobody knows what to do if you get COVID, if your family has COVID, whether you should get this new booster that's going to be coming out. I'm really confused myself, and we talk about this all the time. We have access to care. We have access to policy and policymakers. Why is this so confusing right now? Well, thank you. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you for being a partner on the Common Health and for this opportunity here today. Look, we're in the seasonal cycle now. We're seeing an uptick, sharp uptick in hospital admissions and self-reported cases of COVID. We're going to see an uptick this fall, a little later in the fall, of the respiratory syntitial virus, RSV, which hits the elderly, hits newborns, and it can be a big risk factor for pregnant women. And obviously, we're hitting the flu season. So we're going to see for the first time this fall, the availability of a brand new uh, vaccine for RSV. We're going to see soon a new vaccine for COVID that is based on the most recent variant, the XBB 1.5. Now, we now have a further derivative of that circulating in the United States, 2.86. This will be a good vaccine for what's circulating here. It's a monovalent vaccine. It's not going to be bivalent like we had a year ago. And then we'll have the usual new flu vaccine. The RSV vaccine has been in development since 2013. It got stalled out a bit during COVID, but it's wonderful news that we have this because that virus will kill six to 12,000 older adults and it'll send up to 160, 180,000 into, into the hospital in the late year season and into the winter. Are people confused? I think they're confused for a number of reasons, right? We're talking about three different viruses, three different vaccines. They're awaiting the word from, in the case of COVID, the FDA will be meeting this week, followed by the CDC. FDA will rule on the safety of the new vaccine. CDC will then rule and issue its guidance on who's going to get it. The expectation is it's going to go to older people. It's going to go for those immunocompromised. We'll see what the ruling is on children. And one theme that comes across from all of this is, there's a couple of themes. One is we have a new, very dynamic leader at CDC, Dr. Mandy Cohen, former health director in North Carolina during COVID, former senior CMS official during the Obama administration. She is coming in and she's been mandated. What are your top priorities? Number one is communications to the American public on the respiratory virus season. So she's cranking it up. She's out trying to communicate to people. This is what's coming. Be sure to get prepared. If you want the RSV, you should probably consult your doctor. COVID is coming. Stay tuned. We'll have guidance and decisions this week. She's communicating, look, the top line priority across these three diseases is protecting the older 
population and anyone that's immunocompromised. And that's going to be the metrics by which we judge success or failure, I think, is the degree to which the most vulnerable come in and take advantage of these new opportunities. There's some confusion in the system for a couple of reasons. One is we've dismantled much of our testing capacities, right, and reporting capacities. So yes, we hear many of our friends are coming down with COVID. Okay, what does that mean, right? Many of them are mildly sick and they're going to Paxlovid. We now have a different balance in terms of the way people think about this disease. They don't welcome getting COVID. They may individually agree to take protective measures by staying away from congregate settings, wearing masks, and the like. But we're beyond the days of mandates in almost all instances. Not always, but in almost all instances. And it's coming back to individual choice. Schools are a little bit of an exception where you have children and teachers and the like. But the tracking of data, we still have the ability to track what's going on. If you take COVID, you look at the hospital admissions data, and that data is available, and it shows steady and sharp increase in cases, still far, far lower than what we had during the most acute phase of COVID. We also have wastewater surveillance systems in almost half of America now, which gives us a read into the circulation of the virus. And that can show the geographic and population circulation patterns and the like. So we have some new tools for us. But it is a difficult and challenging communication agenda because you're dealing with three different diseases and three different vaccines that have different requirements to them. So you're talking to different populations. Your message to your elderly, older population or immunocompromised is one thing versus the message to those who may not be at risk or may not even qualify. And also availability of these vaccines. This time around, everybody who's insured is covered for these three, but a lot of the providers have to go out of pocket to stockpile the stuff, right? And so will your providers be going out of pocket? Do they expect that these are going to be used? I think the big pharmacy chains will go full in on this, and it'll, most of it will be delivered through your pharmacies and the like. But people are understandably confused. I've had the same conversation with my mother, my 91-year-old mother, who's a nurse, who's asking me, when and what should I do? Do I have to go to a doctor, really, to get the RSV? And I've had the conversation with you. I've had it with several other people. And I think that is a little alarming. I mean, Senator Burr, who co-chairs our bipartisan alliance, Global Health Security, said he had a conversation with his wife just recently along these same lines. So people are scratching their heads going, wait a second, what's the roots of this? So I think there's no question there's some confusion. I don't think it's irremediable. I think that we're going to see this is the top priority for the communication strategy by the CDC director. The White House is stepping back and saying, this is interesting change of posture. The White House is saying the communications responsibility, the lead communications responsibility is the CDC director, Mandy Cohen. She needs to be empowered and people need to focus on what she says. And we in the White House, I'm saying, I'm paraphrasing, the message is we're not going to get into competing messaging coming out where Manny Cohen issues a statement and the White House a few hours later issues something. And people are looking at them and to see are they consistent with one another. They're trying to get a more unitary approach. And obviously, they're trying to also cut across some of the political divisions. Because as we know, I mean, part of the confusion is that we have pervasive misinformation and disinformation. We also have 
a highly polarized and toxic situation where people are reflexively very responsive. They hear the word mandate, masked mandate, vaccine mandate, it's a trigger. So you got a lot of noise, a lot of rancor, a lot of anger in the atmosphere, a lot of finger pointing going on. You know, we lost 1.1 million people. We haven't really come to terms with that. We're in a somewhat of a period of mourning and amnesia in some respects. And people turned away from all of the COVID stuff in hopes they could escape it, but you can't escape it because it's still with us. But there's a certain, you know, reticence and resistance to not wanting to flip back into the acute phase. So people are psychologically and emotionally not really prepared. They're not listening as carefully or they've turned off a little bit or there's a lot of noise in the air from our recriminations and the divisions in our society. And that's another challenge for Dr. Cohen is trying to connect to all Americans, right? Where they are so that the trust, confidence, performance of CDC improves. This is a moment of test for the new leadership at CDC about regaining trust and confidence in the American public across the political identities of Americans. Get people to listen again and say, yeah, okay, I'm going to listen carefully this time. And that's not going to be easy because particularly among conservatives and among Republican voters, there was a pretty sharp decline in the survey work around trust and confidence. Mandy Cohen has the advantage that she is new to the administration. She wasn't in the administration during this period when, you know, there are allegations that, you know, they overstepped their bounds and this sort of thing. But she has the disadvantage in that she's not a national figure like Anthony Fauci or even Ashish Jha. She's, you know, pretty unknown to most people. I think most Americans don't know her name. They certainly don't know what she looks like or what she sounds like. So she's got a big challenge ahead of her if she is going to be the point person going forward on this disease and other diseases. Yes, I agree. But just take a look, you know, track her schedule. I think she's already in full gear and is talking to everybody. You look at her Twitter feed, you look at her other social media, she is just out there everywhere trying to get the word out and engage and engage with everybody. And she is a very strong and able communicator. She had a great record in North Carolina of winning the confidence across the political aisle, expanding Medicare program, expanding the opioid treatment issues. She's also making opioids and mental health a big issue, which is something that has strong bipartisan support in our country. And she's also looking at family health, at issues around making sure that families that need all of these various medical sources for their young children are getting them. Steve, one of the things that really strikes me about all this is that educated people, people here in the DC metropolitan area who are really exposed to this don't even know what they should be doing. They're not necessarily, if they're getting COVID, they're not reporting it. They're not necessarily quarantining themselves. The guidance that we were all so used to is subject now to the amnesia that you just discussed. And there aren't free tests anymore. We all used to be able to get free tests. Now, you know, tests are $25 each. They're expensive. Sometimes they're hard to get. So what are we supposed to do if and when we do get COVID? We all know friends and family who are getting COVID and they're sort of, they're sick for a couple of days and then they go about their business and they go about well, their I lives. I think the guidance still holds in terms of making sure that you're clear of the virus for X number of days while you are you know, in recovery and don't be circulating. But do you think people even know what the guidance is anymore or remember it? I mean, you were talking about amnesia. I think like, you know, we're sitting here talking on the anniversary of September 11th, today's September 11th. You know, there's certain amnesia that goes on with that. Think about like COVID is just a couple years old and 
you know, we don't even really remember what we're supposed to do if we get COVID. Well, if you get diagnosed with COVID and you call your doctor up and you, you're like, okay, I, I need to go on Paxlovid and you get your Paxlovid and you start that cycle, your doctor's going to tell you, okay, or you just go on the CDC website. You're going to know, okay, I got to be verified clear of this virus by X number of days. And then when I do come back, I should be wearing a mask for the first five days. And we have people here in CSIS that are walking around with masks sure. who, who recently had COVID and they're living by the rules. And yeah, I don't think it's that hard for people to refresh their memories. I think memories have gone a little soft for many of us, particularly the older folks like me. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and me now too, yeah. And uh, But I think we are... We, we have a population that is pretty well protected against COVID. Habituate, look at the remarkable achievement. 91% of Americans have gotten at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. Among the elderly, uh, the older population, the coverage is pretty remarkable. I think we'll get the booster compliance. When the bivalent booster was introduced last fall, the overall percent of adults who qualified, who received it, was something like 22% or something. But when you look at above whatever it was, 65, 70 years of age, very high coverage rates. So getting back to the point that we're in a phase now where we have the therapy tools. People have gone through this cycle. They're not terrified as much by this, but they know this is serious. And we've got systems in place that are trying to give people the signals You've got these new tools, and really it's the elderly and the immune compromised who are the most vulnerable target population for all of this. Right. And those are the people that definitely need to get. And they're the ones that the need the booster. message. Yeah. And, you know, so, but the rest of us who are healthy, who aren't immunocompromised, we're all wondering okay, you know, there's going to be a new vaccine that comes out this fall. Like you said, it's about to be approved. Should we get it or not? And, you know, the first thing I do is I call my doctor and I say to my doctor, OK, should I get this? And so far, what he's told me is, no, he doesn't think I should get it. And he's just waiting for the CDC guidance to come out, which will be later this week. Yeah. And, you know, his point was, is that, you know, you're healthy, you're not immunocompromised, you're under 65, 70 years old. If you get sick, you take Paxlovid and you'll be OK. So, you know, I think right now I have some guidance, it's a little fuzzy, but I'm wondering, you know, is Mandy Cohen going to have stronger guidance? Once this gets approved, are we going to know with more certainty? People have such COVID fatigue. You know, are people going to start talking about this again? You know, we know that so many of our friends and family are having it. We're starting to see a tiny percentage. I think when you travel, you see people very small masking, but we are starting to see some people masking. Do you think that we're going to be able to have a national conversation again that is a good conversation that maybe is less partisan even? I would hope so. I mean, we have been going through a period of very intense anger and recriminations, and it's embedded in many of the presidential campaigns as a big theme. It's seen by Republican candidates as a winner issue to push. But you know, if you follow the debates around the campaigns in public health, most voters have moved on. They're not as spun up and angry about all this. Yeah, you don't see the anger we saw years ago. You know, there's still a lot of heat up on the Hill around this, the investigative committee, the oversight committee and the like. But I just think as a motivating issue politically, it doesn't fly the way it did even a short period ago. You remember that Governor DeSantis made this a central theme of his campaign and he continues to hammer away at this. 
I just don't think it's working. I don't think it's connecting to many citizens in the same way. Well, especially because we're open for business. Nothing's being shut down. You know, right. you're not you're not having restaurants and bars and offices and schools. Right. You know, maybe most importantly, schools shut down. So right. it's not the issue that it was. Right. And as we were talking about earlier, norms have shifted, expectations have shifted around the type of interventions and the mix. You know, people are going to be much more careful and thoughtful, I think, around all of these interventions. Whether we're talking about business closures, business closures are hugely costly. And sure provoked a very strong reaction. The school closures, hugely sensitive and controversial. Mask mandates became, you know, sort of iconic. They're not going away, these issues, but there's going to be a more decentralized approach with decisions vested in individuals or in the communities. As we've seen in Montgomery County, if a principal in an elementary school sees half her or his community of students come down with COVID suddenly, is going to say, well, for the next 10 days, let's mask. Let's not close this school. But let's be very pragmatic in trying to reduce transmission. But it's only going to be for 10 days, 14 days, and let's just see. That's not the end of the world. You know, that's not the hand. certainly shouldn't be. And that's a very pragmatic and thoughtful approach that requires the consent of parents and the consent of your board members and your faculty and the like, and is very reasonable and it's decentralized, you know. And I think that's the direction we're going here. And I would hope that I mean, when you go out on the metro today or you go to an airport or you go to a concert or you go to the grocery store, there's visible numbers of people that are wearing masks now as we've entered this cycle. There's people who just simply have like, okay, I know there's more there. I'm, this just makes sense and I'm going to do it on my own volition for a certain period of time. And nobody's like yelling at them and saying, you know, what are you doing wearing that mask? I mean, it's become more normalized, right? In the yeah, process. not a lot of mask shaming out there now. There's not, people aren't yelling at them or get rid of that. I mean, there's some extremists, but I think today when you go in all of these different settings, and I've noticed this, you know, there's a significant uptake by particularly older folks to wear masks and to limit some of their congregate setting activities. You know, I have a very close friend who's 73, who's in a, a very serious medical situation. It's quite fragile and vulnerable. And I had this conversation with him, you know, last weekend. It's like, okay, we're going to get these vaccines, not all on the same day, but we're going to get those. And you got to be thinking about, you can't afford to have COVID in the circumstances you're in. So let's not be going off to congregate settings too often here. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, bottom line, listen to CDC, Mandy Cohen, yeah. listen to your doctor, pay attention and don't forget about some of the things that we learned during COVID, I think, yeah. is, the, is the... And there's a lot of pragmatic advice. I mean, Lena Wen in the Washington Post sure. has a very sensible newsletter, and she obviously has her column. And you can go to any reputable newspaper and find good advice. Yeah, and They're all hope... running columns. I mean, it's amazing to me. The, the, the residual impact of the COVID is they've got competency on their staff. They feel an obligation to inform their readers about, okay, what's the status and how should I think about this? Yeah, and let's hope that the misinformation and the disinformation doesn't take an uptick this fall. Yeah. Um, but we'll yeah. watch that. Um, changing gears a bit, I want to talk about NIH. There's a lot going on at NIH. There's some new lines of attack at NIH. There's leadership changes. Steve, tell me what's going on at NIH. What should we know? 
Well, we know, of course, that Francis Collins, after a very successful, I think, 12-year run as the overall head of NIH and the 27 institutes in his office, stepped down a while back. And Monica Bertognoli, who heads the National Cancer Institute, has now been nominated to be the overall head of the NIH. And that requires confirmation in the Senate. She is very charismatic. Her career is centered in cancer. Cancer is something that is not polarized politically. Cancer is something that we've had enormous gains in the science and medicine and therapies. We've brought down the mortality of cancer significantly in the last 15 years. American people are going to applaud that. She's got a great argument to make. She's been held up for a few months by Democrats in the Senate, right? Liz Warren wanted her to pledge not to be going into industry or academia and has been pushing for her to make these commitments that when she departs NIH, she'll be unemployable for some period of time. Then you have Senator Sanders arguing that he wants to see greater evidence of price controls on pharmaceuticals from the Biden administration. So we've had these delays, and that's unfortunate because, for instance, recently there was a proposal within NIH to draw $154 million from what's called the Common Fund, which is the fund that the acting NIH director Larry Tabak controls to do a communication science program across all institutes. And they had consent from all the institutes to do this. And that was meant to sort of counter the disinformation, misinformation, and get a more forward-leaning, proactive approach. And it worked its way up the chain, and then it was stalled, and then it was announced it was not moving forward. Well, for some, that is seen as a sign of the price of not having a confirmed leader in place. In other words, there was objections raised somewhere on the Hill. When you're trying to assert communication science, some who are out there in the business of disinformation may see this as adversarial. Or if you don't trust NIH, then you're probably, you know, going to see this as having a nefarious agenda. And that gets to a broader point, which is there are folks that are on the Hill and elsewhere that are making some very sharp charges against NIH. Former Speaker Gingrich, Newt Gingrich, has come out very publicly saying, you know, the House passed a bill, 3.8 billion cut to NIH, 8%. He's saying it's out of control, that it needs to be held to account. Others, you know, are following up on the House. You've got a certain narrative amongst more extreme elements alleging that Tony Fauci got way out ahead of folks, that the funding to Echo Health Alliance that went on to Wuhan was ill-conceived and poor oversight and the like, and they're trying to sort of punish NIH in that period. So that's out in the air. The other thing on the leadership side is important to acknowledge, look, the change of congressional leadership. I mean, we had Senators Burr and Blount as very important parties in defending NIH. Senator Murray, Congressman Tom Cole. Blunt and Burr have resigned. Tom Cole's moved on to other responsibilities in the House. Senator Murray's now head of appropriations in the Senate. So that has created some uncertainty here. I do think NIH is being subject to a very legitimate set of questions right now about accountability. Is it too big? Is it too bureaucratic? Is it too slow? how to bring about a little bit greater transparency and visibility into things. The other thing I'd mention is you've got NIH on the one hand, you've got NSF that gets involved in infrastructure and energy and quantum computing and the like. And with the CHIPS bill, it gave a big boost in funding to the National Science Foundation. Then you have also what's called ARPA-H, which is the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, which is modeled after the DOD DARPA entity, which is meant to take high-risk ventures 
into trying to find big breakthroughs in cancer and diabetes, Alzheimer's disease. And that is getting up and running. It's got its first billion and a half. So there's a lot going on. ARPA-H is tied to NIH, but it's meant to be outside of the normal methods of investing in science and fielding higher risk and bolder and faster in what it does. So those things are all underway right now, too. People have been raising the issue, are we in the middle of a sea change of opinion up on the hill? Are we now seeing a deep well of skepticism about science and NIH taking root on the hill? And are we now entering a new phase? I don't think it's clear that we've really entered a new phase. And what I mean by that is NIH has a budget of $47.6 billion. 88% of that funding goes out the door, mostly to academic centers around the country and beyond our borders. For research. For research. And so that's a lot of money that is going to academic centers all over this country. And so it's part of the economy, the, it's part of our bioeconomy, it's part of our competing with China, it's focusing on things that are shared challenges like Alzheimer's and cancer and diabetes and the like. It's essential to maintaining U.S. leadership in the bioeconomy against China and others. So I just don't think that folks that are saying, let's take it out of the hide of NIH are gonna get very far because you're gonna have you know, that academic center in South Dakota sitting up and going, wait a second. Yeah, why is my member of Congress we trying are, to cut off funding? We are part of this enterprise. Yeah. And if we get cut, that means we don't have postdocs and we don't have research grants and we can't attract the quality faculty we need. We can't hold them. And a lot of these academic research centers are also breeding grounds for industry. In other words, they are where you get your young talent out of your PhD programs into postdocs and into running their own labs. And then many of them migrate into industry as they get a little bit farther along in their careers. So we have industry there habituated to a system that has a pipeline of talent coming to them. And industry is going to look at this and go, wait a second, we're going to start, we're going to start rolling back NIH work and support to our academic centers? Politically, I just think there's a deep durability and resilience to this system. It does need to be less bureaucratic and more transparent and accountable. There's no question. And it's tough. It's so big. It's so big. You have to ask, like, let's be realistic. There's a lot there to try and bring about that. I think that's a totally legitimate thing. And people who are smart, who come in as the new leaders, but people on the Hill and elsewhere, governors, mayors, heads of these academic centers, uh, you know, they're going to recognize that. But I just don't think we're entering a period where NIH is going to be on the chopping block because of a strong deep, enduring skepticism of science. So, Steve, the final question I want to ask you is, we talked about that $154 million that was slated for health communications to mitigate the disinformation and misinformation. What's happened with that, and how can we get that back on track? Well, it's not moving forward. Let's also remind ourselves, I mean, $154 million is very little against the problem. This was an important step forward in something that would need to be scaled and need to prove its value and its effectiveness. And okay, so that got stuck in this period we were talking about. There's a gap in leadership at the top. Larry Tabak is acting. He has to be very careful. Okay. That doesn't mean that we're done with this at all. I mean, I think that project won the approval and consent 
of every institute leader within the NIH system. All 27 institutes. Yeah. So they all signed on to that. They all recognize that we're in a moment in which communication science has to improve reaching an American public about the value of science in a way that's effective is a big challenge for all these institutions. It's a huge challenge. So who, who stepped in front of this and cut it off? The pattern that we've seen in many of these initiatives that have been undertaken by different institutions is the adversaries of this will then immediately say, ah, oh, this is big brother. Or if you're going to move these kind of initiatives, you got to have a pretty strong stomach. You got to stand up to this stuff and you got to be able to defend it as a legitimate and high quality initiative but you're going to get a you're going to be targeted and in our overall environment here where we do have a lot of folks that are openly angry and expressing skepticism of our scientific authorities they're going to be reflexively voicing these concerns so i'm not surprised that that's happened i think we just got to keep working we have no choice but to keep working at this we need far better communications capacities that reach Americans in the digital world that they inhabit. And the digital world that they inhabit, as you know, is now cut and spliced into a gazillion different pockets. Shorts, reels, TikToks, everything. And so it's the conventional stuff of scientists talking to scientists or public health professionals talking to public health. That's only a small segment. We need much bigger and stronger and more diversified platforms to reach Americans in the digital world that they occupy. And so there's a lot of thinking, hard thinking going on about this, and they're going to need budgets to do it. And they're going to need new expertise, right? They need people who are engineers who understand algorithms. algorithms. They need psychologists and anthropologists. They need new partnerships with private sector communicators, right? They need a diversity of communications. You know, one of the paradoxes around Tony Fauci, for instance, was for years, right? He became the head of NIAID in 1984, served under all of these different administrations, Democrat and Republican, and was a revered personality, trusted, enormous trust levels and the like. Well, when we hit the pandemic, things began to change there. And what seemed like an enormous asset, which is a person we don't have a Tony Fauci in the UK or in many other advanced economies or middle-income countries. Yeah, or, no one has a Tony Fauci. You don't have that legacy. But because he was so successful as a communicator, he then, when the tide turned, when the political tide turned, he became a target and became electric with that and toxic. And it was very hard. And in retrospect, it would have been better to have many more points of communications both to reduce the harm he's experiencing, but to continue reaching people. You've seen the movie Oppenheimer, right? Sure. Well, you know, think about the arc of that movie, right? The war ends. He's the national hero. Science has delivered the end to the war. He's the brilliance that carried that. He's like one of the most popular and well-recognized personalities in 1945. 1954, he's dragged into these, the enemy. these McCarthyite things. The environment's changed. He's a scientist trying to weigh in on a hypersensitive issues around what should America's thermonuclear strategy look like. Should we be full steam ahead or should we be suspending and trying to negotiate? And he gets completely consumed by a changing political environment that he didn't read. And, and being a scientist becomes a big vulnerability. Right. And, you know, I think there's a hard lesson in that movie that's still relevant here today, I think. Steve, this is a fascinating discussion as always. 
thank you so much for your time today and your insights. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 